ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations, episode 50. Rod Serling, chain smoking cigarettes and thinking about the Philippines. Play the song again, Jim. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 50 of Oral Presentations. Rod Sterling, chain-smoking cigarettes and thinking about the Philippines. We, uh, I was going to make this one just a pure recess episode. I'm pretty happy to be at 50. Uh, if, you're, if you're new to listening to the, this podcast, I started this uh, uh, last December, and the whole thing is it's supposed to be 100 episodes, so I'm not so fucking stupid at the end of it. That's really how this started. I was uh, freaking myself out because I'm 33 and I wasn't curious about anything anymore. I was just like, uh, I don't know, kind of kind of in a rut a little bit. And I was like, dude, start looking into shit. Uh, and so that's what this is. So this is the halfway mark here. So I was just going to do a recess episode because I did stand up all weekend at Helium with uh, Shane and McCusker. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But I, I consider just doing a pure recess episode where I just talk about that. But... I also want to do Rod Serling. If you don't know who Rod Serling is, this is the dude who created and wrote a shitload of episodes on his own, The Twilight Zone, the classic television series, Twilight Zone. They've made it into movies. They've tried to remake it a bunch of times. It ran for five seasons initially, and I love The Twilight Zone. I'm a huge fan of The Twilight Zone. My dad got me into it when I was young. I just, I really like it. It's got a nice nostalgia feel to me. Like, I can, I can watch it and enjoy it, or it's great falling asleep shit, and I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion. There's also a quality to certain entertainment things where they make me feel good about falling asleep, like I can fall asleep to them well, and I don't mean that to be insulting. Sometimes I just like things that I can fall asleep to. So I can either watch The Twilight Zone, or I can watch it and I fall asleep, and then I wake up and there's some old black and white character acting like he's death or the devil, and then I go back to sleep. Nice. The sound doesn't modulate well. You can't fall asleep to those new Batman movies. Those are bad falling asleep movies. Shit's blowing up every two fucking seconds. I, I like them, but you can't fall asleep to them. Twilight Zone, grade A falling asleep shit. So I want, and I, I've been a fan for so long that I I know Rod Serling. I know the I know the guy's name, and I know that he smoked a shitload of cigarettes and that he made the show. But that's all I know about him. And for what the what that guy's brain produced. I, I wanted to see where the fuck that came from. And that's that's what this episode is. I'm not really even going to talk about Twilight Zone episodes at all, or the plots of them, or anything like that, or the actual show. I want to talk about where Rod Serling's brain came from. Because I, I don't know his backstory at all. And it's episode 50, I can do whatever I want. This counts as film and television history. The show went on to influence a ton of different... I mean, people kind of... I've heard it said as an insult to M. Night Shyamalan that he writes Twilight Zone episodes because all of his movies are predicated on one twist, but I like M. Night Shyamalan movies. I don't I mean, who the fuck, what, do you, what more do you want from a guy? How good was Signs? Signs holds up, regardless of Mel Gibson, however you feel about Mel Gibson, dude. Also, can we just quickly acknowledge that Mel Gibson hasn't gotten in trouble once during this pandemic? Can I just say that with all these celebrities being inside? And some of them are, are having all sorts of videos come out, or some people are flipping out, or doing all sorts of things for attention. I'm just going to say, Mel Gibson has been mum, quiet, the whole time. Has not gotten in trouble once. Just saying. Signs holds up. Also, you have to see Joaquin Phoenix fight a fucking alien with a baseball bat at the end of it. You see, Joker gets to fight alien at the end. Commodus from the Gladiator, however you know... 
However, whenever you found Joaquin Phoenix, if you just recently found Joaquin Phoenix, please go watch Signs. Because if you like him now, you get to see him fight an alien for the life of a little girl at the end of that movie. If you're trying to get hyped up, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but Joaquin Phoenix swinging away at the end. It's a great movie. Holds up. Anyway, it's a recess episode. What the fuck am I talking about? Signs, we're all over the place, talking about the Twilight Zone. I did stand up this past weekend. Uh, Shane was headlining, Shane Gills was headlining uh, Helium Comedy Club with Mr. Matthew McCosker featuring, and uh, I got tapped to host, which I haven't done stand up since fucking Bridgeport. Or no, I think I did like Raven Open Mic like right before the pandemic hit, and that was the last time. But even that's, Feb, that's like seven, eight months, something like that. I, dude, I was like, I don't even know if I remember this. <laughs> like, it's been so long. But it, it hosted, but it's hosting with friends at a club that I know. It's, and it's a great low ceiling. If you've ever been to Helium, Philadelphia, it's a room that's like made for comedy, dude. It's a low ceiling. You're right there. And even though it was like half capacity or I'm not sure, they had everybody spread out. I felt super, super safe about it. The room is still like a gorgeous room for comedy, man. I was fucking so lucky to get that shit. And I was just like, here we go. Can't wait. Let's go. I was fucking hype, but the first set I had, I came out, and I forgot what the fuck I was doing for a second, like, the first time, it was a Thursday show, I walked out, and there's a dude with a bald head to the left, and I automatically, I feel a kinship with, with my bald brothers out there, because we, you gotta deal with this, you know, you don't really have much of a choice, you get old, and you just kind of look decrepit the rest of your life, dude, we are who we are, I'm not saying anything bad about you, it's just, we got we gotta, we gotta work on some things, you know, but we're bald, it's fine, so I walk out on Thursday, and the host set's only like 10, 15 minutes, a couple of bits, make sure everybody knows how to look at the stage, make everybody, you know, hey, how we doing? Bring on the first comic. And Six is doing a guest spot. Six did two guest spots, or two nights of guest spots, and then Gardini, uh, Sean Gardini, who does the uh, roast battles and stuff on uh, all over the place, uh, he did uh, guest spots on Saturday. He did great, too. But so I come out my first set on Thursday, and I fucking forgot I was doing stand. I just walk out, they say, uh, give it up for your host, Chris Wood. I walk out on stage. I think he played, I, get, I walked out to the Spice Girls. I think uh, Nick... Uh, who's the manager of Helium, just picked the Spice Girls. It's, it's pretty fucking funny. So I walk out, I hear the Spice Girls, I look over to this other ball guy, and I think, I don't know if I said hi to him first, or he said hi to me. I think he might have just said hi to me, like we were on the street. And I just responded like I was on the street. I was like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And then it, I was like, oh, shit. I'm, like in my head, I was like, oh, I'm doing stand-up. Okay, all right. Hey, hey, how we doing, guys? But for a second, I just got hit with street conversation because I'm not used to talking to people. I've been alone in South Jersey for fucking ever. So I just got hit with street conversation. I was like, oh, what the fuck? All right, anyway, how we doing tonight? <laughs> it was fun, man. I had a lot of fun doing those sets. Saturday late show, got raucous. Dog showed up. This fucking crowd was kind of wild. It's great. Some guy, like, knocked himself out a little bit. He, like, hit his head on a wall, I think, and then he ran out of the, the fire exit door by accident. Don't do If you come to a show, don't, don't do that. But I'm just saying... This guy did, like, something happened. He fell off his chair, hit his head. I think he had a mullet. He fucking <laughs> hit his head and banged out the fire escape. <laughs> like, the fire escape door in Helium just fucking jet. He, it was like a, it was like a, like a Muppets movie. Fucking the way a character would leave, like a Muppets movie. Like, hit your head, fucking dash out the door, and all the other Muppets are like, what the fuck happened there? It was fun. Saturday was fun, hanging out. Didn't get a chance to talk to a lot of people after the show because of the COVID pandemic rules or anything. But I did, I mean, at least Saturday, a couple of people were hanging out, but only a few. Uh, oh, this was fine. So again, yeah, talking to people's different. It was a lot of talking to people all the way. It's normally just me blowing, fucking waving to people and not using an umbrella when it's raining out on walks. So it's like, holy shit, all these fucking people. 
Uh, I mean, I mean, it, comparatively, it's either zero people or like a uh, limited capacity crowd that like the shows are really fucking fun. So after I was talking to, I was talking to somebody, I should remember these people's names. I'm sorry. I was talking to a dude who's a Muay Thai fighter and his girlfriend who runs a dog rescue shelter. I was talking to him about dogs or, or something. It was kind of like a serious topic and it was out in like the bar area. And then one guy, uh, somebody, it was definitely a dog was, it was like talking to Shane and then as he was leaving with his group, he like tapped me on the shoulder and I think he just said like, yo, good set man or something. And so then I turned around, but I was in a serious conversation with these other two people about something that was like a, a tonally very serious. So I turned around just over my shoulder and I was like, All right, man. hey, have a good night, man. And Kyla, Brian Six's girlfriend was close to me. So Kyla looked at me after I said that. I didn't think it was weird at all. I didn't think it was weird. And Kyla looked at me and was like, yeah, why did you sexy goodbye that guy? And I was like, shut the fuck up. I didn't. What are you talking about? And then I was in my head about that for fucking 15 minutes. About like, did I just sexy goodbye dude by accident? Because I'm not used to fucking talking to people anymore. Just the tonal shift of the conversation. There was something serious being talked about. And that, yeah, dude, I was like, all right, man, have a good night. I, I don't even think I said it like that. I was like, hey, thank you, man. I thought it was, I, the tone I was going for was like genuine. Like it made me feel nice. So like nice, you know, but I was all, I, I didn't know. But I hope I didn't sexy goodbye anybody by accident. But Kyle was making fun of me for that pretty hard, which made me laugh. But overall... Great weekend. A lot of fucking fun. I'm excited to do this episode. And I, I picked, again, not just a recess episode. I wanted to look into Rod Serling. And, you know, I'm not talking about any sort of universal coincidence of signs or anything like that, believing in patterns like that. But some dude jumped in on Patreon and his name was Rod Serling like a day and a half ago. And I was already thinking of doing Rod Serling as an episode. So I was like, fuck yeah, dude, you got to do that. Let's go. Come on. Let's just look at a young Rod. See what made a brain that made the television series Twilight Zone. Also, I'm dressed like Mick Foley right now. I got a flannel on and a neon green Mosquito Festival Texas shirt and sweatpants and flip-flops. I'm considering going to the live podcast dressed like this, but I will take a beating if I show up looking like this. I look like fucking Mick Foley in his downtime. All right, here we go. Episode 50, Rod Serling. Rod Serling, chain smoking cigarettes, think about the Philippines. All right. So, where did this dude's brain come from? All right, we're gonna we're gonna end this episode with the Twilight Zone's first premiere date, and then a couple of notes about what happened with the Twilight Zone. But I'm really not gonna talk about the Twilight Zone at all because I want to figure out what molded this dude's brain into making that that kind of that kind of and so much of it too. He made. We'll get to the numbers at the end, but this dude was cranking. This dude's a fucking workhorse. So, all right, October second, 1959 is when the Twilight Zone first premiered on CBS on national television. But again, we're not really going to focus on how, how that was received or anything like that. Obviously, smash success. I, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. This guy's fucking massively successful and an icon in television writing, just entertainment writing in general. But we'll get there. But to get there, we got to start with young Rod. All right. Rod Serling was born to parents Esther and Sam Serling on December 25th, 1924, Christmas. And I'm such a fucking Christmas ham myself. That when I first started looking into this guy, and then I found out his birthday was on Christmas, I was like, maybe we should save this episode for, like, Christmas, you know? Because his birthday is on Christmas. And then I was like, alright, dude, you're not... It was either this or Jeffrey Dahmer, and I was just like, dude, you're already... Just don't, don't save something till Christmas because a guy's birthday. Anyway, so Rod Serling was built... Built? Rod Serling was born on December 25th, 1924, to Esther and Sam. Now... Esther, his mom, was a stay-at-home mom, a.k.a. domestic engineer, which I've heard people call stay-at-home moms before, and I kind of like that title. 
So mom was a domestic engineer, stay at home. And his dad's work history, I think, and again, I don't have anything to back this up, but I think his dad's work history played into him being able to like go for a creative career that's totally unstable. The idea of like writing in radio and television. Now, Rod Serling's dad, Sam, early on was trying to be an inventor. It didn't work out. It did not work out. His inventions, not enough to pay the bills. So after Rod Serling's dad's invention career failed, he took over the grocery store that his wife, a.k.a. Rod Serling's mom's dad, owned. So no ego or anything. It was just like, all right, well, my shot at a creative life didn't work out. I'm going to take over my wife's dad's business and make a living. Here we go. And then he did that for a while. But then in 1930, the grocery store closed down. And then his dad, Sam, became a butcher. So he just learned to trade at the end. So Rod Serling, growing up, knew his dad's work history of like, took a shot at a creative career, didn't work out the way I wanted I'll do whatever I got to do to support family. I end up working a fucking trade. Nothing wrong with that. I think I think that might... I'm not sure. There's no way to ask him. Rod Sterling's been dead for years, and I, I don't have anybody to call that would have known Rod Sterling. Who the fuck am I going to call? But I think his dad's work history may have played into him being like, I'm going to fucking go for it, dude. So, also, Rod had an older brother, Robert, who was also a writer. Fuck, I'm so into this topic. That's <laughs> such a cheese dick way to say that, but it did impress me. Robert was also a writer, dude, and not just like a ho-hum. He wrote eight novels and 16 nonfiction works over the course of Robert's, Robert Sterling's career, and a lot of it was about aerospace and technical writing, and he was successful. Robert Sterling, his, Rod Sterling's brother, ended up getting awarded the Lauren D. Lynn Award for Distinguished Achievement in the Field of Aerospace or, a, or Aviation Journalism at the end of his life. So... This is another theory I have for maybe why Rod Serling's brain was so good at writing all sorts of content for TV and all sorts of stuff. Because I have a theory regarding brothers and mixed martial arts that I think applies to this. But I again, there's no, this is a tenuous, you know, this is, this is real thin here. But my history of watching mixed martial arts, whenever there's a pair of brothers, a lot of the time, the younger brother becomes more successful than the older brother. And this is especially, I mean, this applies if your parents have nothing to do with mixed martial arts or taekwondo or anything like that. If you have a pair of brothers, my theory is that the older one got into it and then he had to learn all the lessons of like how to navigate that industry. And then the younger brother started training and got to learn from the older brother. So a lot of the times the younger brother will go on to be more professionally successful than the older brother because he kind of gets a head start from the older brother as far as like how the game works. Examples being Nick and Nate Diaz. Not that Nick Diaz isn't, isn't successful or wasn't massively successful, but I think Nate Diaz has probably surpassed him professionally at this point in time. Also, if you want to go back in time, Ninja was a, a fighter in Pride Fighting Championships, and his younger brother is Mauricio Shogun Hua, who ended up being UFC champion, I believe, at some point in time. Had a long storied career. I think he's still fighting, actually, which is crazy, because that guy's knees are made out of fucking balsa wood, and they have been for years. But professionally very successful. I think that ties in with the Serling brothers here, because Robert was a successful writer, but then Rod Serling would go on, maybe learn what it, a little bit from Robert, and just take off as far as an entertainment career goes. So, both brothers were born in Syracuse, New York, but very quickly before the age of two, the family moved to Binghampton, or Binghampton, Binghampton, New York. There we go. Then this is when the boys were very young, and I think this is important because Binghampton is considered a Rust Belt city. So it was booming post World War II, and a lot of defense industries ended up in there. IBM, Boeing, they all set up shop, which I think may have influenced his brother Robert's writing because you had those resources in your town to go ahead and, and ask him questions. I'm not sure if that's if that's a correlation or not, but Binghamton was a Rust Belt city that was booming after World War II and then 
got hurt by you know after after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, the Cold War's over. Defense industries kind of took a hit, so Binghamton kind of went and you know lost a lot of jobs and never really regained what it was. But it was booming when Rod Sterling and his brother and his family, Sam and Esther, were hanging out there. It, things were going well. Now. When Rod Serling was under 10 years old, and this ties in with Orson Welles, and it's not the only Orson Welles tie-in in this episode. So, when Rod Serling was young, under 10 years old, he would put on plays with his brother, and sometimes using the neighborhood kids, to entertain his parents. If you listen to the Orson Welles episode, or you know about Orson Welles, Orson Welles also entertained adults with plays, that, I mean, but Orson Welles did it under pressure, like his mom used to make Orson Welles earn the attention of adults by being entertaining or else or young Orson Welles couldn't stay in the room. And so that's where the young performing got into Orson Welles' blood because he literally had to earn his way into the adult room by singing and dancing, being entertaining, telling jokes, being funny, something like that. So a similar thing, but there wasn't that pressure of like, we'll make you leave. Rod Serling putting on plays for his parents, other adults, stuff like that. When he was, when he was a kid with his brother... And the neighborhood kids. I thought that was a cool parallel. And it's, the, it's not the only tie-in between Rod Serling and Orson Welles in this story. So, oh, also, Rod Serling was known in his family of, like, being a guy who could just entertain himself with his own thoughts. So one, there's a story where the whole family, when they were all young, the whole family agreed that this is a two-hour car ride. We're not going to talk the whole time, and we're going to see if Rod notices. And apparently for that whole two-hour car ride, Rod Serling was just going on about his fucking ideas and all. Young Rod Serling just going on. Didn't even notice that nobody else, that they all had conspired to not chime in and to see if he would stop. And he, he didn't stop, <laughs> which I thought was funny. All right. But young Rod Serling, got to go to school, get an education, son. So in school, his teachers in elementary school think he is a lost cause. They're like, this guy is a fucking idiot. I can't control him. He's too wild. He was known as like the class clown. But that kind of changes in seventh grade. Huge shout out to a woman named Helen Foley, who was Rod Serling's seventh grade English teacher, because she pulled him aside and was like, hey, I'm not sure. Have you ever tried debate club or theater or, you know, public speaking? What about the school paper? Like creative interest for him? And that put him on his path. He started working for the school paper. He started crushing the debate club. Rod gave it a shot and he loved it. So he and also while he's doing this, once he gets into writing for an audience, he starts cranking out freelance radio plays. Now they all get rejected by different because we're we're back in the era of radio plays at this point in time. Television kind of exists, but like it's it's still coming of age. Like Twilight Zone was one of the first real breakout anthology series. And anthology, by the way, means that each episode is kind of self-contained. So there's not like a through it's not like a boy meets world where fucking there's the same characters the whole time. Rod Stewart, and it wasn't the only time he advocated for an anthology-type series. And also, when The Twilight Zone finally got axed after five years, one of the main gripes Rod Serling has is that, like, nobody's doing anthology series where the episode is self-contained and people know what the theme of the show is, you know, social commentary, something like that. Like, every, every show after The Twilight Zone that came on was one with main characters that were all the same. In Rod Serling's opinion, the networks did that because they undervalued the intelligence of the audience. He, he Rod Serling, and I've watched him in an interview talk about like CBS and the, the other networks, they all think that every viewer of television is a fucking idiot, that they can't follow. If they don't have people to be like, oh, it's him every episode, then they won't watch a show. 
Which is funny because the Twilight Zone was to- was massively successful before that without main characters. Each episode was self-contained. Now he would he would rotate actors and use some of the same people sometimes, but not all the time. The Twilight Zone as a show was a show about the writing and how the each episode played out. You didn't follow somebody's life through high school and then to college and then whatever else. And he wrote so much of it on his own. Anyway, sorry, it's a weird sidebar. But all right, so Rod gives writing a shot for an audience, loves it in high school. Also, side note here, Rod Sterling played tennis in high school, but he also tried to walk on to the varsity football team one time. He was just like, fuck it all, which I like because, like, I don't know, he's not scared. I'm trying to walk on to the varsity football team. It didn't work out. It did not. Rod Sterling was five foot four. It didn't work out, but he gave it a shot, you know? All right. So right after Rod Sterling's high school graduation and during his senior year of high school, he was writing for the paper. He's like the senior editor of the high school paper at this point in time. And he was advocating for like, hey, join up, fight, fight for your country in World War II. We got to go defeat Hitler. So right after his high school graduation, he enlists to fight in World War II out the gate. Apparently, it was the morning that he woke up after he graduated because his brother was doing it too. So he was like, fuck this. Let's go take out Hitler. Let's go, dude. So joins up in the military, 1943. He is assigned to the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. The guy fought in World War II. I didn't know any of this about Rod Serling. I knew he just rode a lot and smoked a ton of cigarettes. Dude was in World War II. So, 511 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Also, sidebar here, while he was in the military, Rod Serling also participated in boxing. So, he would box with the other dudes among the armed services. Now, he was okay at it. Apparently, he's known for having a berserker style. So this dude, he would just be quiet and then just come out and flail at you. He would just go wild. And another thing he was known for is that he broke his nose in his first fight and in his last fight. I think also in his last fight, he got knocked out pretty hard. And that was it for old berserker and Rod. But I like that a lot about him. You know, just mixing it up, getting in there, you know, killing time while you're in. Now, all this story is pretty likable to me, but I already was predisposed to like anything that came out about this guy. Because I love the Twilight Zone. Anyway, so. 511 Parachute Infantry Regiment. All right. Now, he does get disappointed because after basic training, they do send him to California, and he's like, God damn it. That means I'm fighting the Japanese because he really wanted to go take on Hitler. A lot of the things he wrote in high school, talking about how Nazi Germany was fucked up, gets shipped out to the West Coast. He's like, well, I guess I'm fighting the fucking Japanese now. That's fine. All right, well, whatever. But he's a little disappointed. He'd still go. And I didn't know that the guy who wrote Twilight Zone fought for America in World War II. That's like having a warlock on your side. The Japanese didn't have a chance. They didn't even know about it. With or without the nuclear bomb, dude, we had a warlock. The guy who wrote Twilight Zone was fighting for us. Just saying. All right. So, Rod Stewart did ship out to the Philippines May 1944. And his division was in combat at the Battle of L-E-Y-T-E, Let in November. Now, after that battle, he got transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, a.k.a. the Death Squad. It was called the Death Squad because they had a 50% casualty rate. This guy was for real in World War II. So, the reason he got transferred, they don't really know. I don't know. Some people say he was a bad soldier. I don't know. It was cited that, like, he didn't do basic upkeep things. Like, during downtime, he wouldn't reload his magazine so he'd have full ammo during actual battles. And they did say that sometimes he would just wander off and explore during downtime. Just be like, where the fuck did Ron go? Like, I don't know. He's in the trees or something. Oh, he's climbing a rock. Where the fuck did Ron go? So... For whatever reason, he gets transferred to the demolition team, and it's a way higher casualty rate. Now, as he's in the demo team, he, he, I mean, he sees a lot of death in his deployment in the Philippines, no matter what. He sees it in combat, but he also sees it when you're just chilling. 
like freak accident shit. And this forms his mind moving forward as far as generating whatever he was going to write for radio and TV. Specifically, he was chilling down, I think it was in the Philippines once. He was just hanging out, downtime. A dude had a letter, and he was within the eyesight of Rod Serling, and a food drop crate comes down from the sky. Just an airplane dropped a crate of food, comes down, dude walking with a letter. Dude gets decapitated by a fucking food crate that just fell out of the sky. Rod Serling watched the whole thing. It, he said that, like, watching shit like that, he was he left the Pacific Theater of War to go back to on American soil, and he had a real reverence for life and the and like really thought about the unpredictability of death as far as like deep themes go, and which would carry over to some of the episodes of the Twilight Zone. He a lot of his writing dealt with like morality questions and, and social commentary. I feel like I'm just gushing about this guy the whole time, but that's kind of what the episode is, and it was just going to be a, a straight recess episode. Come on, we got some information here. Twilight Zone's great. All right, so. Survives World War II. Back on American soil. Here we go. Takes advantage of the GI Bill. Goes to college. Now, he does have a bum knee. In, in World War II, he was awarded the Purple Heart. He got clipped a couple times. By, uh, I think he got shrapnel. And he definitely fucked his knee up. That would kind of bother him the rest of his life. His wife would say that like sometimes he would fall down the stairs if his knee gave out on him. So, back on American soil. Bum knee. He was awarded the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. Now, I didn't know what the fuck a Bronze Star is. I'm, I'm embarrassed about that, but I looked it up because of this. A Bronze Star is uh, given to a soldier for heroic achievement, heroic service, merit, uh, meritous achievement, or meritous service. Now, I think where Rod Serling got this Bronze Star from is because when they would go through different towns in the Pacific theater and liberate them. Sometimes the locals would throw a party because like, woo, let's go, dude, no more Japanese. We're hanging out. Right. So they were throwing parties. So apparently this one time Rod Serling and his unit had liberated and they were throwing a party there. Like Rod Serling and his unit wasn't throwing the party. The locals were throwing a party, but Rod Serling was hanging out. They were doing a play for him, you know, just like with childhood hanging out. Right. All of a sudden the enemy starts shooting up, assaults the party, tries to crash that party. Now, while this is happening, Rod Serling's commanding officer sees Rod Serling dive onto the stage to save one of the performers from gunfire. I don't know if that's why he got the Bronze Star, but I, I found that story, and I think that might be why he got the Bronze Star. Either way, pretty cool Rod Serling story about World War II. Now, all right, back on American soil. We're in college. He's got a Bronze Star, Purple Heart. He's got a lot of ideas in his head. How do we get these out of my head and maybe make some money with them? So, as he's at college, he gets involved with campus radio. Now he, and he's already got the experience from uh, being the senior editor of his news of uh, the, of the high school newspaper, putting on plays as a kid, getting into college radio. How do we try to make a career out of this, right? Also, this is a fun part of the story. While working on college radio, this is when he meets his babe, aka his future wife, lady named Carol. He meets her in this setting. Now she's also a college student at the time, and it was noted that. At first, Carol did not want to go on a date with Rod Serling because he had a reputation of being a little bit of a ladies' man, a little bit of a philanderer. Uh-oh. But Carol warmed up to him. They went on a date, I guess, and they would go on to get married in July of 1948. Rod Serling gets the babe squared away, 1948. College radio, here we go. Where are we going? Now, he's experienced with debate, high school paper, freelance radio scripts. He's done this a little bit before. But this is where Rod Serling really develops into like a workhorse. He is churning out content during this period of his life. Now, 
He took a gig as an unpaid intern for one year. Now, as he's an unpaid intern at another radio station, he's got to make money somehow. He's got a babe, dude. You got to go on dates. He's a good girl. You got to take her out, have a good time, pay your bills. What are you doing, Rod? So, to make money on the side, he starts testing parachutes for the military. <laughs> Which, like, dangerous work. He got 50 bucks a pop for each parachute that he tested aka jumped out of a plane because he was in the par he's in the 511th parachute infantry so he's like fuck it i'll make some stuff i'll jump out of planes for 50 bucks a pop rod sterling creator of the, uh, the the twilight zone made side hustle cash in college jumping out of airplanes testing parachutes and that's not all he tested either because it was 50 bucks a piece for testing a parachute but this one time they offered him 500 bucks for a hazardous parachute test and they only paid him 250 up front and they were like, all right, well, once you're on the ground, we'll give you the next 250. And Rod Sterling was like, fuck it, dude, I'm trying to get paid. Let's do this. Survived it, obviously. Took a hazard. Also, and that wasn't the craziest test he did for side cash during college. He also tested, what was it? It was an, a new style of ejector seat for an aircraft. He tested it, and they offered him 1000 bucks for it. Now, they offered him $1,000 because this ejector seat had already killed three other dudes. <laughs> So Rod Serling was like, that's $1,000, though. And I, I looked up how much $1,000 was in 1948. $1,000 in 1948, what Rod Serling got for testing this ejector seat, it's about eleven grand. It's It translates into $10,800. But the seat had killed three dudes before, but I could kind of see his math on that, where it's like, all right, well, they already killed three fucking guys doing this. Are, really, are they really going to kill four guys doing this? I feel like I could just make like eleven grand right now. And not really tell anybody about it. But I thought about that, and that's probably also the thoughts that the third guy had. Where it's like, well, they already killed two guys with this fucking injector seat. Were they going to kill a third guy? And he was like, what? But either way, Rod Sterling got paid 1000 bucks injector seats. That's a fun job for a side hustle while you're doing campus radio. I thought that was really cool. So, unpaid intern. Getting thrown out of planes for 50 bucks a pop. Still cracking out a ton of freelance radio plays, but they're all getting rejected. Now... He becomes a paid intern at a different radio station next year somewhere else. Still cranking out scripts. Nobody wants him. Still testing parachutes. Sterling is quoted as saying that his time in radio entertainment taught him the value of time as far as entertainment for an audience goes. So he was writing, or he said that in writing for a medium that is all about seconds, he had to really respect the audience's attention span. And that's, he was cranking out so much work during college. And this is all the time that he was learning how to respect an audience's attention span. Now, by his 1948-1949 college senior year, Rod Serling was creating and producing all of the content for that radio station. In the course of his college career, all of the content for a year of a college radio station came out of Rod Serling's head. This dude, I'm telling chain-smoking cigarettes, writing 24-7. This guy made so much shit. Workhorse, dude. And so the, the college, the, these college years reminded me, I remember I heard... Have you ever heard of the band Ben Folds 5 or the musician Ben Folds? So I remember watching an interview with him when I was like in college. It must have been like 12 years ago. But he was talking about how he learned how to play the piano so well. And I think he said that he spent a couple of years maybe at college in Miami. It's been years since I've heard this story, but it still stuck with me. And so he spent like three or four years in school in Florida, I think. And during that time, he was just running scales, which if you don't, uh, if you don't play piano or don't, Running scales on a piano is that you have your hands and you're just going up and down the keys 
fast, slow, different patterns over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that's what Ben Folds said it, in the interview, Ben Folds credited like part of the reason I play piano so well is because I spent three or four years just running scales, man. I was just down in Florida running scales and it still stuck with me. And when I was learning about Rod, St- or not Rod Stewart, Rod Serling, I knew I was going to call him Rod Stewart at least fucking once. I wrote Rod Stewart once in the notes, and I was like, don't you dare disrespect Rod Serling by writing Rod Stewart. Not that Rod Stewart's not also the man, but it's totally different types of being the man, you know? Anyway, so Rod Stewart, or Rod Serling is cranking out fucking work in college. And to college, he has a little bit of professional success here. Hello. Hello. All the scripts that are getting rejected for his freelance radio plays, one finally gets picked up. He wins 500 bucks and a trip to New York City for him and his babe. The play was called To Live a Dream. Now, the idea of jumping to television occurred to Rod at this point in time, or somewhere around now, because he had a story about boxing that he pitched to somebody, a, a radio station uh, play, and he pitched them to the, to the radio station. The radio station was like, ah, I don't know, man, it's good, but like, here's the thing. All our listeners are female, so this shit isn't going to work, which is kind of fucked up. I don't know. I've done a couple boxing episodes. I think it's all right for anybody. But anyway, so he picks it's a boxing story. The radio guy's like, here's the thing. We got all female listeners. This shit ain't going to work. And you can't really see the fights. This sucks. Whatever. So Rod certainly takes that rejection. And instead of being, you know, upset about it, I mean, I guess he was still upset about it, but he decided to learn from it. It was like, fuck that. I'm going to go into television because I can do this episode as a television program and be able to show the fights and tell the story even better. And this is the second tie into Orson Welles and Rod Serling because aside from just being a kid and putting on plays for adults to be able to entertain them with or without the pressure of, you know, whatever. If you're Orson Welles, it was, I don't know if you want to call it child abuse. I don't know. It's just his mom was like, if you're, you want to be in the adult room, you better be entertaining Orson or get the fuck out. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. You gonna call that child abuse? I'm not sure. Either way, made a legendary film and TV writer. I don't know. But Rod Sterling also did the same thing as a kid. And when it was time to make the jump from radio plays to television, one of the prime motivators for making that decision was that like there's just more storytelling tools for me if I move from radio play to television. And if I'm gonna have people overseeing my work and editing it either way, I want to go to the the medium that has more tools for me to be able to tell a story like a boxing script better. So this is when Rod Sterling starts thinking about. Maybe I jump to TV, dude. Maybe I start reworking these scripts. So this is, at this point in time, Rod Stewart, <laughs> Rod Serling. God, if I do it one more time, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be disappointed in myself. I'll do it again, 100%. I'm too excited during this episode. I'm going to call him Rod Stewart till the fucking end, I bet. Anyway, so Rod Serling goes pro at this point in time in radio. It's 1950. He gets a professional writing gig at WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. He is paid 75 bucks a week, which translates into $808 today. That's not bad. That's pretty good. So, he stated that during this job, he wrote the whole time. And it was demanded of him to write the whole time, which is one of his chief complaints looking back at this time of his career is that the lesson he learned from this job is that he felt like he burned too many good ideas for not enough money. I mean, 808 a week's not bad, dude. But the amount of money that his ideas would go on to generate during the Twilight Zone, looking back at his time at the Cincinnati radio station when he was a salaried content producer, he was like, I think I burned too many ideas, man. And that's the one thing he says to like younger writers in an interview is that like, be careful if you're going to become a salary writer for something because you're going to be forced to burn through any idea you have and then scavenge your brain for any idea you didn't even know you had. And even if it was a good one or not, you still got to burn through it. So he kind of regretted having so many ideas kind of not get picked up here. One of the cool ideas he had that uh, 
I mean, it's not that it wouldn't get picked up, but it would get picked up and then really augmented to kind of kill, I don't know, some of the depth to it. Specifically, there was this one idea he pitched. It was about the ghost of a young boy and the ghost of a young girl, and they would look out a train window onto scenes of modern-day, day-to-day drama, and it was going to be like an anthology thing. So it would be a way to have social commentary regarding the current events when the show ran, but through the eyes of two children who were killed during World War II. Now, he pitched that, and they were like, all right, well, we're going to, I see what you're doing, but we're going to, we're going to take the dead kids out of that. The dead kids thing, the ghost kids is weird, Rod. We don't need that shit. We are going to make them live kids. And then we're going to call it Adventure Express. So even, so if, I mean, they would just change his ideas at the end of it. And it, that wasn't the only time his ideas got changed. If it wasn't the editors above him, the advertising, like the actual companies, Tide, General Electric, whatever the fuck, whoever was buying ad space had direct oversight over the editing process of the content at this point in time. I mean, I imagine they still have sway over it now, but there was actually like a dude from GE that was looking over scripts and being like, this is pretty good. Ah, this is not good. I had no fucking, no experience in storytelling, writing, anything like that. Guy just worked for for General Electric or whatever and was like, oh, I, I don't know. This is, I mean, we're buying ad space on here. But I mean, Brad never really got under that thumb. That was just kind of how the industry was. But at this point in time, Rod Sterling, after the Ghost Kids thing gets changed, he's like, I don't know. I feel like radio is eating itself. The medium is watering down its content to just produce kind of shit that's kind of cheap. And I don't want to do that. I want to move the television. He decides to try to make the jump to TV itself. And if it doesn't work, fuck it. Because, remember his dad's career trajectory? I think, I don't know. I don't have any confirmation of this. But I think making this decision may have been influenced by his father's work history. Because his father tried to go all the way at a creative career. Inventing didn't work out. Ran his mom, ran his wife's dad's grocery store, and then became a tradesman. I think that would have, I mean, the idea of like, fuck it, I'll just go for it. Rod Serling already saw that once in his father's work history. So this is the point in time where he's like, I'm making the jump to television. I'm pretty good at this. I produce a shitload of stuff, and some people like it. A lot of people don't, but I don't really pay attention to that shit. I saw some guy get his head cut off by a crate in World War II. I don't give a fuck about rejection. I'm just going to keep making stuff. So. At this point in time, Rod Sterling puts out more than a few feelers into the television industry. He reworks a ton of his radio scripts into TV projects and just starts sending them out to everybody. Any television network, he rewrites his radio stuff and he's just sending it out. Just see, if he gets back a rejection, he'll send that project out to a different television station. Be like, hey, what's up? He's just passing them around, dude. He's uh, What's that called? Oh, it's killing me. I can't remember what that's called. Three-card Monty? Yeah. Man, it took longer than it should. But he's just three-card Monty and his his radio scripts into TV plays, into different re- networks, and being like, who wants them? Nobody really wants them. He gets over 40 rejections in the first year of doing this. But, again, who gives a shit? That guy took that... Th- that crate took that guy's head. I don't care. I'm fine. It's, rejection doesn't affect me at all. I'm gonna keep moving ahead. Plus, my dad ended up being a butcher. I can always be a butcher. It's fine. So, by 1954... Rod Serling's agent convinces him to move to New York City because that's where the action's at. 1955, Rod Serling's 72nd script, 72 script, runs as a show called Patterns. And the New York Times calls the show a creative triumph. Let's go, Rod. Let's go. New York Times, baby. A creative triumph. 72. You got it done, dude. Hell yeah. This success then translates into 1957. Rod Serling moves his family across the country to California because that's where the action is now. 
So, again, he does encounter some early script problems here out in California because the advertising agency literally had people in the fucking editor's room, writing room, being like, I don't want that. I don't need this. Or it's just like for sponsorship stuff. Like, if a, like specifically one line in uh, uh, the, the, uh, the television drama, I think it was a radio play that then became a television drama called Requiem for a Heavyweight. It was a boxing thing. It had a line in it that said, get a match or got a match. And a representative from the company for Ronson Lighters took that line out. And they were like, what are you talking about matches for? Hey, you're sponsored by a lighter company. Get this shit out of here. So he had all of his scripts were getting picked apart by a bunch of different hands. But he was still creating a bunch of shit. He also, I mean, it, it wasn't just like little product placement shit that got changed. Like Rod, Ser- Rod Serling would write social commentary into his episodes. Like he did uh, Noon on Doomsday is an episode that he made that was inspired by the murder of Emmett Till in the South, the race relations. And once he did an interview that said that like, oh yeah, that episode was inspired by this. The editors were like, we can't have, what are you doing? Da, da, da. He get a bunch of blowback from that. And they changed a lot of the racial elements of that show because they were like, hey, the advertisers don't want this kind of hubbub. But Rod Sterling's like, yo, I fucking wrote that. It's really good, dude. What are you doing? So he had a lot of problems with editors, but he's still just, you can't argue with a guy who's cranking so much shit out, dude. He's making so, a workhorse, dude. Workhorse. So, aside from, you know, the censors and the company's editing his work, but he's still, he's still churning out a ton of work. Here it comes, 1958. He writes something called The Time Element. Now, this was meant to be the pilot episode for a series, The Twilight Zone, that he had in his head for an anthology series. You know, he used all sorts of themes and commented on day-to-day life and the social climate of America and the world in general. Now, this was his pilot episode, which is the first episode that he saw it being The Twilight Zone. It gets bought by a network, and then it is featured on a show that was produced by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, a.k.a. I Love Lucy, Lucy and Desi, or Lucy and Ricky. I watch a whole lot of Lucille Ball. Sorry about that if you're a big Lucille Ball fan. I called Ricky Desi there. My bad. Anyway, so Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, got a bunch of money. They buy this script off Rod Serling called The Time Element, and they make it in in their own show. Now, the plot of this episode, The Time Element, is a dude is psychologically, or he's he's having problems. He's going to a psychologist because he's having bad PTSD because he's having nightmares from being in the Battle of World War II in Pearl Harbor. I don't know if there's a worse way I could say that. The plot for the time element, a man goes to a psychologist because he's having bad PTSD and nightmares from being at the Battle of Pearl Harbor. There we go. How about that? Slow it down for a second, Chris. Too excited, son. Tell him the plot. So the twist at the end of this episode is at the end, it reveals that the man with the nightmares that's at the psychologist's office actually died at Pearl Harbor. He's a dead man. He's a ghost. And what you're actually watching is the nightmares of the psychologist instead of the the, the man that has the problems that said he uh, from Pearl Harbor. Not even a real man. Not a real man. The whole episode, the whole show itself, you're watching the nightmares of the psychologist. And that was what Rod Sterling's episode or writing was famous for one big twist, which is why they kind of say that Emily Shyamalan's movies are Twilight Zone episodes because there's one big twist at the end. But either way, really great episode in my opinion. That's a great story. I'm, I'm into it. I was so into it, I fucked it up so hard at the beginning there and then I slowed it on down. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> so, people are blown away. This, the time element plot goes off on the Lucy and Desi produced show, fucking blows up. People are like, who made this? 
Rod Serling, how much more of this do you got? CBS specifically is like, Rod, what do you got, buddy? What are you doing with the Twilight Zone anthology series? That's fine. You got a number of different projects. You, you make more shit than I've ever seen in somebody's life. You do smoke cigarettes 24-7. We love you. Come do the Twilight Zone at CBS. God damn. And this is when October 2nd, 1955, or 1959, Rod Serling's legendary television series, The Twilight Zone, first premieres. And it crushes. We're not going to talk about... Now, I am going to have like a couple of notes at the end here, but I think I'm, the Patreon episode this week might have something to do with this too. I might, I'm not really sure. But just real quick, Twilight Zone, it ran for five years, a total of 156 episodes, with 92 of them being written by Rod Serling himself, just all on his own. Guy wrote 92 episodes. Also, I believe in the third season, it was supposed to always be a half-hour show, but in the third season, they changed it to an hour show. So it's 92 episodes, and... A lot of hidden work in there for the season where they became hour episodes. Those kind of fucking doubles, dude. Rot churning out work. 156, 156 episodes total, 92 by himself. A lot of the plots were taken from his life experience regarding boxing, military life. There's airplane pilots, and it offer and it often offered a take on political racial issues, not overtly, but it, you know, hidden within the writing itself. And the, a lot of them are kind of like morality plays. Anyway. Twilight Zone ends. Rod Sterling walks away from the project in 1964 after 156 episodes are done. He's like, I'm done. We're done with doing it. Now it's tried to be brought back by a number of different networks and people, but it's never recaptured the same success as the initial Twilight Zone episodes, I don't think. They made a movie about it where, and there's a, the Curse of the Twilight Zone movie is a whole different topic that I may cover on Patreon. I'm not sure. Some guy got killed by a fucking helicopter when they were filming that, dude. Watch out. Anyway, so Rod Serling walks away, massively successful show, changes television, I mean, forever, in my opinion. He goes on, and then after, after the Twilight Zone stops running, he does complain publicly that, like, you guys are just making shit. This is a lot like the radio industry, where you guys are watering down your own, pro your own product because you're, you have no faith in the audience anymore. But, for what he did, now I know Rod Serling's brain a little bit better, where it came from, his childhood, where he got his life experience from, and... When did he learn to just work and, and make an incredible amount of shit? I also found out where he met his babe at. Fun episode for me. Rod Serling, episode 50. I don't know. I hope you guys like this one. I got, I got a little too caught up. There's a couple of times. I'm about three quarters of the way through this. I considered re-recording it, but I'm just going to leave it, dude. I'm coming off a happy weekend. It was fun as shit. I did stand up. It's not like you guys are surprised that I'm tripping over my own words, are you? Is anybody, anybody listening to this surprised that I ran myself over a number of times with excitement. That's just, it's just a, a topic I liked, and I'm coming off the most fun weekend I've had in a long time. Half, the show's halfway done now. We're at 50. I don't know what the Patreon's going to be, but it'll come out Thursday. Also, side note here, when my dad turned 50, you got you run this play if you want, if you got somebody in your life who's like turned 50 or having any sort of birthday that's a milestone. I guess you could run it for 25 too. But when my dad turned 50, I just went to a trophy store. Or you can just buy trophies. Just, you can just buy, I got him a, I'm looking at it right now, he still has it down here. It's a huge silver cup, and I just had him put half a lifetime achievement award on it. You can buy people trophies for nothing. He's kept it the whole time. He used to have it in his office. I'm telling you, if you got somebody with a birthday that's a milestone coming up, go big on it. It's a pretty big trophy. I think it was only like 240 bucks. If you got some money, you can buy somebody a an a outrageous trophy for $500 if it's their birthday or something. Episode 50. Rod Serling. Guys, thank you for listening. I hope you guys are having a nice October. I hope, I hope it's going all right. 
uh, people still dealing with stuff, but I'm, uh, man, I'm way, I'm very happy to have done stand up. I don't know when I'll be doing it again, but it was a really fun weekend for me and I, I enjoyed this topic. So thank you guys for listening to the show. Be back Thursday. I don't know what the topic's going to be on Patreon. And if not, I'll, I'll see you next Monday. Hope you guys are doing all right. Hope you guys had a nice weekend and that you guys go on to enjoy your Monday. All right. I'll see you guys.